right, folks, if you would, open up to Ezra 1. Uh, these folks will be handing out Bibles. If you don't have one, raise your hand. They'll give you a Bible, Ezra 1. And then, also, if you would, you have Ezra 1, also Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8, so you can keep your finger in both. We're going to be there. Um, let's do this. <clears throat> let's begin with Ezra 1, and we'll stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. And I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. We stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor, the other we tolerate. I, I love that, and that's why I repeat it, because it's true. Ezra 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia... The word of the Lord, by mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel, he is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers, the houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests, the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Medrath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400, and all these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for this picture of Cyrus. Lord, thank you for the outline and the blueprint for our nation. Thank you that there's hope. Thank you that there's freedom. And it dwells in the hearts of men. And so Lord, please let us awaken. Save us, God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a seat if you would. Pastor Rick did a, an amazing study we covered a, a little bit of this, but not necessarily where I believe the Lord is taking us today. But his message is so good and worthy of watching if you haven't seen it. I'm going this direction because I've been moved by a book I'm reading called Ten Tortured Words. It's by a, a very favorite author of mine, Stephen Mansfield. He is a fascinating author. 
Lincoln's battle with God is where I first came to understand that Lincoln never professed faith in Christ publicly or ascribed membership uh, to any church or was ever baptized. But yet no other president in the history of the nation, especially in his first and second inaugural address, included more scripture than Lincoln himself. And when you see it, it's in context and it's a profound, he's, it's almost as though he is a very profound preacher. Elizabeth Keckley, who was uh, one of the servants in the White House, said that when she would enter into the president's office, he would always be reading the Bible and spent quite a bit of time in the book of Job. He had lost his son. A lot of heartache, his wife was on the edge of insanity. There was trouble in the Lincoln home and he, all the pressures of the world. And he's the one who coined the phrase that at times I realized there was nowhere else I could go but to my knees. His law partner, Herndon, as I learned from Stephen Mansfield, said that he was an atheist. He came to faith, many believe, while in office. It was Stephen Mansfield when I read his book about Churchill. came to understand some profound things about Churchill and his beliefs. I remember when I was in college, I wasn't a good student. I was a terrible student. I, I hadn't, I'd never written a term paper. In high school, I didn't write one. I had a friend drop it off at my front door. I, I, I told the teacher, I've confessed. I've, but I, I, I was an athlete. I was just, a, just wanted to remain and retain my eligibility so I could compete. I, I wanted to go to the Olympics. I, I swam, played water polo. I got a scholarship. And, and I remember that when I started to, I'd left Tulane because I, it was such a tough school and I realized I was going nowhere. And, and I, I got my eligibility back. I had to take a year at a junior college. You, you have to sit out a year in order to gain a year. Uh, so you have five years to complete four years of NC2A eligibility. So I went to junior college and then I, I, I broke all the records at San Diego Mesa and got another scholarship to Fresno State. And I got there and I remember it was time to kind of figure out what I'm gonna do with my life and I'd become a Christian. And I, I was reading the Bible every day I'd, and I'd, I'd, I'd probably never even read a book in its entirety and I couldn't put the Bible down. God had given me a gift of reading at that moment and I couldn't stop reading. And I remember my dad said, you need to go into business and neither of them were Christians at the time. You need to go into business. I'm, okay, business it is. I remember I got the course catalog and I started going through it to sign up for my degree because I was an athlete and you know, so I'm looking at the business and all the titles of the classes didn't make any sense to me. Baffling, because I, I had the worst, I, I, terrible at math. I, I had a teacher named Jonah Daskin for math. She was awful. We even had a song for her. It went something like, dun, 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 Jonah Daskin. She gave me an absolute hatred for anything pertaining to numbers. And so here I am having to do business and I don't get any of the mathematics and I, I just thought I can't do this. I, I stumbled across bachelors of arts and I came to a history degree, a BA in history. And I kid you not, maybe it's dyslexic, but the title of every class began with history. History of, history of, and you, you're gonna think I'm crazy, but every time I saw the word, I was thinking his story. That's, that's what I saw. I saw his story. I go, wow, this is cool. His story of, his story of, his story of. And I came to realize that history is a scarlet thread of redemption 
through the sands of time for those who would honor God and those who wouldn't. In the ash heap of failed governments that suppress humanity, billions have died. But then there's those shimmering lights in the annals of history that flicker and shine bright. We recount the glory and the strength of their characters as we've once again taken a look at Lincoln, invoked his name. I I remember being a candidate um, for the assembly and and I took my son on a walkabout. I was running for the state assembly. We had like 600 volunteers and and we had a campaign office and it was a buzz with activity and people were on the phones and walking and it was crazy going on. And I, I took time out of the campaign, and my son, as you can, he's, his, his birthday's late October, and the elections are first Tuesday in November, so you know this is a critical week, and he has to go and have a birthday. <laughs> but it wasn't just a birthday, it was him turning 13, and for us and our family, we do a thing called a walkabout, where you go from a boy to a man, and I called him out from his mother, and I took him out, and we began to, the first place we went to was a cemetery, and I said, every great journey begins with the end in mind. And I started talking to him about a good name is like a precious fragrance, better is the day of a man's death than the day of his birth. I said, son, you were given a name, whether that's a stench or a fragrance, depends on how you live. You gotta front load your life. A man is a provider and a protector. And every decision you make from this day forward will be a result of, are you preparing to be exactly that? Because it's on you. You're a son of the law now. You're accountable before God. You're no longer a child, you're a man. And every decision you make is to equip yourself to one day be that provider and that protector. And leave a good name. And I took him and I surrounded him with my friends and I said, find good friends, not companies of fools. And I told my son why each of these men were my friends and why they blessed me so much. And then each took in turn to share nice things about me and talk to him about what it means to find friends like that and what it means to be a man. And they all spoke into his life. And at the conclusion of it, we all voted and we said, what do you think, should we let him in in the world of manhood? <laughs> and you're like, yeah. And we welcomed him, we prayed for him. For each of my boys when I did that, it was a fundamental transformation of their lives. I, I didn't realize how profound it would be for them. But, cool thing, the gift I gave my son on his 13th birthday was the autograph I'd gotten when I was 10 years old from Ronald Reagan when I met him. He signed it and he said, best wishes, Robert McCoy, Ronald Reagan. And I said, son, a good name is like a precious fragrance, but better is the day of a man's death than the day of his birth. It's a good name, Ronald Reagan. I met kids named Reagan, spelled the same way. I named him after the president. It's a good name because it go both ways. And I get to the campaign office with my son and he's got his gift. As we walk in, everyone cheers. Hey, candidates here. Because I... I want all the bumper stickers and their shirts wear my name. And they have a cutout, life-size, flat rob. <laughs> and I remember saying, hey, everybody, it's my son's birthday, and they all cheered. And I said, for his birthday, I gave him uh, an autograph, uh, my autograph of Ronald Reagan, and he's holding it. And they all put their phones down while they were making calls. And we're in crunch time. They put their walk pads down. The place got silent. Everybody gathered around the table to look at the signature of Ronald Reagan at the moment. God couldn't have picked it better. At that moment, I turned to my son and I said, son, a live candidate is not as important as a dead man's signature. That's the power of a name. I said, live your life that way, boy. That that emphasis 
change the trajectory of my son. And I thought about this idea of what we're supposed to do with our life and how do we make a difference. And this book moved me so much. Ten tortured words. The words aren't inspiring. There's nothing like four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this nation a new continent. When in the course of human events, it becomes, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't uninspiring. And, and not only that, the words were prohibitive and almost angry. But these 10 words, and I've put 16 of them, but the first 10 of the 16 changed the world as we know it. You're here as a result of them. They put a government in check. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Those are the first 10. Or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. You think, well, what's so important about that? Never before in the history of the world did the conscience of man no longer be dictated by the government. You are free. Congress shall make no law. They were declaring to the great institution that you will not do this. They were prohibitive in their words, almost angry in what they were stating. And the founders called it the Novus Ordo Seclorum, the new order of the ages. Religion would thrive, but the state would not command it. The wisdom of faith would always be welcomed into the corridors of political power, but the dictates of faith would always be left to individual conscience. You will be accountable to God. You'll be free to worship. For the first time in human experience, the legislative power of a nation was forbidden from legislating the conscience of man. Did you hear that? For the first time in human experience, the legislative power of a nation was forbidden from legislating the conscience of man. You're free. The 16 words that I had listed there of the First Amendment, stand guard against tyrannical tendencies that have plagued man for centuries. Our founding fathers, in writing those words, told the most powerful institution in their new nation what they must not do. Congress shall make no law. You don't do that. You stay out of that. They never intended a secular state. Now, the Everson ruling would say otherwise in 1947. For 150 years in America, that First Amendment was never challenged. 150 years. Unprecedented freedom. Until Everson case, 1947. They call it the Establishment Clause now. It's not freedom of religion, it's freedom from religion now. Government can't have any religious symbolism. 
They combined that with the Johnson ruling and a couple of others and now the church is besieged and under attack. And this is Everson versus the Board of Education. And they just basically redefined the First Amendment. And they used an obscure letter by, written by Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist Convention, written 14 years after he had participated in the Constitutional Convention and the First Amendment was already penned. He wrote this letter 14 years after that, saying there's an invisible wall of separation. What he was stating in emphasis of the original design of this was that there's not going to be a state religion. You are free by your conscience before God Almighty to worship him as you please. Now any religion that forces you, a caliphate doesn't work under a constitutional republic nor the First Amendment. But if your dictates are yours and yours alone, you are welcome to do as such and the states would be free to be a part of it as well. Why is this so significant? Because as I've stated, in the 6,000 years of recorded history, this little blip on the timeline of 245 years, protected by those 10 tortured words, have allowed you unprecedented freedom. And as a result, when man is free, he flourishes. That's why the greatest inventions are all by Americans. The airplane, the internet, the elevator, the air conditioner. I mean, go on and on. And sciences, medicine, technology, we have more patents, more Nobel Peace Prize winners. We've accumulated more wealth than all nations in previous history because people are free, free to explore. They're not confined by the dictates of a government telling you how your conscience is to operate. You're free to believe that in the womb of a pregnant woman is a human being and nothing else. You're free. You're free in our country with your religious convictions and your beliefs to see a covenant before God as designed by the scriptures themselves and you're free to involve yourselves in sin and enslave yourselves personally as we had seen Rick share with us what happened to your life. No man wakes up and says, I can't wait to be a crystal meth addict and lose my family, but you're free. Our children are not, so we must protect them because until they come of age and they become adults of the law, as my son did at 13, we try to keep liquor stores away from schools because it's the wise restraints that make us free. We want to front load our children and not place before them the least common denominator. And we know the idea of nurture and nature, that there is a sin nature. And our founders saw this and wanted to protect the desire of man to enslave another. And they told the most powerful institution in this new nation, the legislator, you will not do this. These people are free. And somehow in our apathy and our laziness, they've taken that. And they took it because we let them. 
And now they would dictate from Sacramento and Washington that the church is not permitted to be open. That you're not allowed to speak these things on the internet and that church must be censored. That you cannot have political candidates come any longer and speak because somehow that violates the Emerson decision or the Johnson Amendment. But Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. You have no right. You just can't do it. It's the new order of the ages. Religion would thrive, but the state would not command it. The wisdom of faith would always be welcomed into the corridors of political power, but the dictates of faith would always be left to the individual conscience. I'll tell you what, that's a scary thing for a dictator to let people worship a God more powerful than him. And that's what makes Cyrus so amazing. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mount of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. There's also a word from Isaiah in regards to Cyrus. Who confirms the word of his servants and performs the counsel of his messengers? Who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I'll dry up your rivers? Who says of Cyrus? He is my shepherd, and he shall perform my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah 45, 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, and to shut the gates will not, so that the gates will not be shut. Two and three of that same passage, I will go before you, and make the crooked places straight, and I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who called you by your name, am the God of Israel. And this was Babylon. This is what Cyrus conquered. He had the hanging gardens. It was beautiful. The Euphrates River went through it. And they had gates, double iron barred gates, that blocked, that they would be lifted and the boats could come in and they'd be closed and the boats would not be able to exit, nor could you. It was a walled city, the most protected. It was so fortified. Xenophon, the historian, said that when Cyrus brought his army to Babylon, he initially was perplexed as to how he would take the city. Since the Chaldean soldiers do not come out to fight, and there's the listing there, the Babylonians fearfully remained behind the massive walls, refusing for the most part to encounter the enemy, exactly as the prophet had indicated. Isaiah, and also you'll see with Jeremiah. When Cyrus surveyed Babylon's fortifications, he said, I am unable to see how any enemy can take the walls of such strength and height by assault. Accordingly, he devised a brilliant strategy for capturing the city. Really cool. Euphrates River ran under the walls throughout the center of Babylon, and from the river, canals, quite broad and sometimes navigable, were cut in every direction, and the Jews in captivity could thus lament by the rivers of Babylon, there we cast down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Just to the west of the city was a huge lake basin, some 35 feet deep, and covering 40 square miles, but which at the time of the invasion was but a marsh. Cyrus stationed soldiers at the point where the river entered of the city and where it exited, and at a given time, he diverted the Euphrates from its bed into the marshy lake area. His forces then entered Babylon under the city walls. Just walked right in. Do -de -do -de -do -de -do. 
The treasuries of Babylon were unbelievable. It's listed here that the treasures of Babylon were splendid beyond description. Herodotus, in describing just one of the temples, Jewish historian, in the city declared that it contained more than 20 tons of gold. It's interesting to note that when Cyrus issued his famous decree, which we just read in Ezra, allowing the Jews to return to their land, he endowed them with silver and gold to help finance the project, as well as returning some 5,400 vessels of gold and silver that originally had been taken from the Hebrew temple. They had sacked Jerusalem, taken it all. It was in Babylon. Cyrus conquers a city that's unconquerable. And then, instead of keeping it for himself, he gives it to Jews. And not just Jews, exiled Jews who were living in Babylon, who had lost everything and had been there for 200 years. Why would he do that? I mean, that's a hard city to conquer, and he does it, and then he gives, he gives the Jews 5,400 articles of gold and silver and lets them leave their, their indentured servitude and go and rebuild their city, and he gives them resources to do it in, in the book of Ezra. And he's thrilled about it. And he converts, it says. The way it was conquered, as you know, and you read it in Daniel where Meaning, meaning, tekel far, so you've been weighed in the balance, have been found wanting, and, and they were drinking, and they were praising the gods of wood, haste, and straw, and then all of a sudden, this night, your life will be taken from you, and called, uh, and it's the finger that was writing on the wall, and the, his knees shook, and it's a way of saying that he soiled himself, and, and, he's, he, and, and he, he, he asked Daniel to interpret it. And this is, this is Daniel's, he, Daniel's been, he was taken from Israel as Jerusalem as a little boy. He was castrated and, and then called to serve with Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego. And, and, and he survived three administrations and he never compromised his faith and he always told the truth and now he confronts the, the king with the interpretation. He says, tonight you're in trouble and they, they drank and partied and called for the vessels from the temple and partied with the vessels. And that night he died. And that night Cyrus came under the gates as he diverted the river and the soldiers entered and they were so drunk and the reason why is the mighty men of Babylon had ceased fighting. They remained in their strongholds. They, they no longer went out to fight. They had, they, it was estimated they had 20 years worth of supplies and grain stored up. They just stayed there and partied all night. And they were drunk as they were every night. And Cyrus walked in without firing a shot. And this is one of the coolest things this is the Cyrus Cylinder. The heritage of Cyrus was the heritage of human understanding, tolerance, courage, compassion, above, above all human liberty. He repaired the ruined temples and the cities he conquered. He restored their cults. That's how historians write it. He restored religions. Returned their sacred images as well as their former inhabitants which Nabodinus had taken to Babylon. The policies of Cyrus towards subjugated nations had been contrasted to those of the Assyrians and Babylonians who had treated subjects, subject people harshly. He permitted the resettling of those who had previously been deported and sponsored the reconstruction of religious buildings. And it's listed in this cylinder. This is, this is like an early version of the First Amendment. This... This king looks at people and says, you go worship. Let me give you some money and go do it. You go build your temple. But you're the king. You tell them what to do. They, don't, don't let them worship a god. 
What would change a man's mind? What would bring him, as it says in this passage of, of Ezra, for him to declare, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And give him whatever he needs to go. What would cause a man to do this? And I bring you back to this. Daniel was an old man. Cyrus comes into the city. Daniel approaches him. with a 150-year-old scroll. He says, you need to read this. It's from our scriptures. There's two of them. There's Isaiah and Jeremiah. They were written a long time ago before we went into exile. And you're gonna find them interesting, Cyrus. And Cyrus begins to read. Who confirms the word of his servant, performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise her up waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and the rivers will dry up, who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd, wait, Cyrus? Daniel, is this about me? Read on. He's my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, to the temple your foundation shall be laid. There's more, great king. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations, loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors. We went through those tonight. And the, I know. So the gates will not be shut. When was this written? 150 years ago. And my name is in this, and this is all stated, yes. I will go before you and make the crooked path straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who called you by your name, am the God of Israel. Okay. That's very compelling, Dan. You're free to go. And what did the people do when Ezra said, you're free? The first thing they did is they went to Jerusalem and they built the temple. That's what the book of Ezra is about. They rebuilt the temple and they were surrounded by enemies. Cyrus didn't protect them. He just gave them everything they needed to do because it's your God and it's your responsibility. And they rebuilt the temple in the waste places. And then in Nehemiah, where we are now, and we'll conclude with this, and this is what blessed me. I got to the end of Nehemiah, which was the conclusion in our anchored reading. And when I got to Nehemiah 8, God showed me two things about the nation. And I'm gonna talk to Charlie and others. We must awaken the nation, first the church, to be rebuilt, to recognize that they are free and no government dictates what they will or will not do. The conscience of man is in the heart of God and he's free. Secondly, 
When the churches are rebuilt and that understanding is established, the walls of the city will be rebuilt because Jesus says he judges nations. And he says make disciples of nations and nations are boundaries and borders and constitutions and he will judge them based on whether you enslave them or you set them free. Whether they were free to worship me and know me or you suppress them for the sake of your own power and you have added to the ash heap of history to the billions who have died under your false utopian societies of enslavement and lies. You either believe there's truth and it's permitted to be spoken and there is no hindrance of speech and people are free to worship God or you suppress it in your attempt to silence it and make your own reality. The laws of nature and nature's God declare that you are wrong. You'll be held accountable and the churches must awaken to their responsibility and they're the first to be rebuilt and stand and declare that people are free before God. And they must be the first to declare this and stand against the tyranny. And the ones that gathered to Jerusalem were the pioneers. But then Nehemiah shows up, a man skilled and gifted in government, in governance, in government. And he begins to build this wall and faces challenges as this government's being established and the nation is being rebuilt. And the wall is completed. The temple is established, the wall is completed, and the people gather and they start to re-inhabit Jerusalem that had been laid waste and now it was a safe place to be because their families could be safe from violence. They had a place to worship. They could educate their children in peace and they were guarded by the walls that a government would protect the citizenry a government that would allow the people to honor God. And they began to return. And the nation began to flourish. But as they began to return, they found something. And the people marveled. And America needs to reawaken to what the Jews found. Nehemiah 8, all the people gathered together as one man on the wall had been completed, and I'll read to you. Don't fall asleep like it's a bedtime story. <laughs> now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra and the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. And these are the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The moral law, civil law. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from the morning until midday. Before the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose and beside him and at his right hand stood Mattathiah. Shema, Ananiah, all of these folks that were part of it. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, which means true, true, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, these are all the names of these Levites. They helped the people to understand the law, they taught them. You know, we used to teach the Ten Commandments in school. 
you're accountable to God and you're accountable to each other. You don't get to make your own rules. You fear God and no one else. This is the moral law. And decisions you make and you govern in the places you go as you mature and you become an adult in a world where you're a provider and a protector or a nurturer, you remember that moral law and the decisions you make and the reason why these three to five million Jews could live in a wilderness for 40 years without a police force or a standing army is because they feared God and they cared for each other. You don't lie. You value truth. Your press values truth, not narrative. You don't steal, you don't covet, you don't commit adultery. Those are our responsibilities to each other. You don't murder. But have no other God before me, says the Lord. Your responsibility to him are in the first five and then to each other in the second five. As you begin to read this, the place shakes and the people get an understanding and the Levites help them understand. Have you helped your children understand these moral laws? Do you, can you recite the Ten Commandments? Are we contending as though this is a place for necessity in our culture today? Are we ashamed of God's word? They helped the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place and so they read distinctively from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. This was a government. Did you know that our, our government printed Bibles? Did you know that? Some of the rarest Bibles on the earth, but they tried to destroy them all, but they're still here. By act of Congress. Did you know they used to hold worship services in the Supreme Court buildings? And the Marine Corps band played the hymns. That's an odd separation of church and state. Nehemiah was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept. And when they heard the words of the law, then they said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow for the Lord, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. And they celebrated the feast of tabernacles at the conclusion of this in chapter eight, also by day, also day by day from the first day until the last day he read from the book of the law and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner, almost finished. Nehemiah 9, the people. Now this is a government movement. Why? Why? They had been enslaved for 200 years. Cyrus lets them go. You get an option. Come back to me and let's do it right. Or we just step into the shadow of a billion dictators history is yet to see. What do you decide? And the walls were built and their families were saved. And God had moved on the heart of Cyrus. And the scriptures were true. And all of those who mocked us 
have been silenced. And it's you, God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. What do we do now? And in the reading, they start to hear it. And they're so moved. And from the government, after the temple's restored, then the walls are built, the people are safe, the law is read, revival breaks out. Now on the 24th day of the month, the children of Israel were assembled in fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. And then those of the Israelites lineage separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood and confessed their sins and iniquities. They stood up in the place and read from the book of the law of their Lord, their God, for one fourth of the day and for the other fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. That's a church service. And you know what they're confessing? We screwed this up. We walked away from you. You gave it back. Through no effort of our own. Lord, whatever it takes to raise our children in such a capacity and to remind them that no government will dictate their conscience and they're free before you, Lord, help us to do this. And the people were all outlined in the total capacity of this. And then as the tribes and the Levites cry out in a loud voice to the Lord their God as one man, the scripture says, there's this song that should echo in the hearts of every free man and woman. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, everything in it, the sea, and all that is in them. You preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram, brought him out of her Chaldees. You gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. You made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, to give to his descendants. You performed your words, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cries in the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against his servants, against all the people of the land. You knew that they acted proudly against them. You made them a name for yourself, all as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. He's reminding them who they are. They're remembering their history. And they're reminding people the God that saved them that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of a rock for their thirst. He told them to go and to possess the land which he swore to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly and hardened their hearts and their necks and did not heed your commandments and they refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness. You did not forsake them even when they made a molded calf for themselves. What we've done to worship anything but God. Read this. Do it on your own, please. It's time for America to awaken. We mock football, and as Christians, we, with moral piety, even though we watch it quietly, we 
disdain that is practiced and played on Sunday. I think it's fascinating. I think it represents the American soul. And their declaration is, the games aren't played until service is over. And people gather in their homes to celebrate individualism and teamwork and excellence and American pride. I think Sunday should be for Jesus and football. (laughs) Because the Lord honors the individual. You're created in his image. He wants you to excel. Apply restraints in order to pursue excellence. You watch that worked out on the gridiron. You see civility and teams, sportsmanship. You see the reverse too and it stands out like a sore thumb. And then we watch this sport we love kowtow to tyranny and begin to kneel when the anthem is played and you realize how stupid all this is and what they've done and how corporate America and we've run for wealth and money and we've forgotten the gift that we had on a Sunday to just go to church and enjoy ourselves watching people do their best. And now all of a sudden they want to remove anything of pride, of nation, love of God. And I like the fact that it seems that football has recently started to throw off the yoke of wokeness. They're not fully there, but they're not as meshed in as the NBA, which is a train wreck. And I met with a number of football players at a wedding and I shared with them about CRT, critical race theory, and how it's coming to ruin your sport. You guys better be awake. And I hear that there's, there's an awakening happening across the land. And it's time we no longer be enslaved and return to the God who comes to set us free. Rebuild the church and rebuild the city. Repent of what we've done and turn back to the God who gave us this great land and made us who we are. That our children and our children's children will be able to live in a land where those 10 words will not be tortured, but they will be free. That no government will ever dictate the conscience of man. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this prophetic history of Cyrus and Daniel and Ezra and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Nehemiah and it all ties in and you find that's cylinder of Cyrus and you realize 245 years ago our founders understood that dictators would come to try to steal our ability to worship you but unlike the soldiers of Babylon who partied and drank themselves to oblivion that Cyrus could just walk into the gates and take it over Lord let us be vigilant and to awaken to our responsibility that the conscience of man and our ability to worship you will never be hindered by any state. This is America, and you made it as such. We love you and we thank you. We thank you for your word, which is true. And Jesus, you are the word, and you are the way and the truth and the life. And it's you and you alone who've made it possible because you delivered us from the greatest slaveholder, and that is ourselves. You set us free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And while we were on the auction block 
of sin, you set us free and you paid the price. Your blood shed for the remission of our sins. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We lift up your name. It's a powerful name. And we praise you and we thank you. Amen.